0: Hello and welcome to the Trauma Resonance Resilience podcast and my name's Lisa Cherry and I'm going to be your host today and it's been ages since I did a podcast and I'm so so sorry but there's been like a pandemic and there's been like my PhD and there's been like all these different things that have been going on um, that have meant that actually recording podcasts has been trickier. So that is why I am excited and I always start my podcast with I'm really excited to introduce but I am really excited to introduce to you someone today. So this person was born in the same year as me, so we share a year. Um, they also have had a long career in journalism and my kind of, the person, I don't know, but my Fantasy job was Kate A.D. So there's something really exciting for me around that. Um, this person has wooed the nation dancing, which by anyone's standards is, well, I mean, I couldn't even do a Zumba class. So I'm very impressed with that. Um, she has a psychology degree from Durham, but previously to going into journalism, um, and is a mum of two, and is also the author of "There's No Such Thing as Naughty." Please welcome Kate Silverton. Yay! Hello. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. It is so good to have you on here. There are like so many touch points that it's going to be a job to stay really focused. Um, and it's just so nice to have you here. So, um, God, where do we begin? Can we start with um, Can we start with just dancing menopause and journalism? Should we just do like all of those? Three I, knew I knew it. I knew. I thought she's going to go in on that. She's going to go in <laughs> on that. Uh,
1: yes, I'm much. More, I'm very happy to to go in on that. Where do Wait. What's your question on that one?
0: Well, okay. So I was thinking about because you had your you've had your children. What might be considered uh, a little later and. So I think your eldest is 10. Is that right? She is 10 tomorrow, which I don't know when oh. you're going to be broadcasting this. But yes, it's her birthday. I'm just, yeah. yeah. So yeah. you're kind of in that whole Perry and beyond having young children. I mean. I am. I- I Does that I, even work, like, in your... Well, it's a very know? good
1: question, uh, and I'll give you a really potted history, because there was a very interesting conversation that came about when... I'm just trying to think if I, if I can relay it correctly. Uh, but essentially... I was sat in front of a very eminent uh, gynaecologist um, and without going straight into it, but that's what we all do. That's what we should be doing. Um, and, and I just remember saying to him, we were talking about the potential for me to have. Uh, I've only got one ovary. Uh, I only had one ovary and um, the potential for the other one to be removed. And um, and so he was taking my history and it was sort of started off with yes in my 20s i had this you know terrible twisted cyst that nearly cost me my life and i lost my ovary and fallopian tube and then in my 30s i tried and failed uh well i mean five times with ivf um but many more times uh, you know prior to that with miscarriage and and the usual things that so many people that have tried and and found it difficult to conceive Um, will have faced. And so there was all of that heartache. So that was in the 30s. And you could see him sort of nodding and thinking, right, oh, dear. So this poor lady is now presenting to me in her uh, late 40s. And, you know, we're talking about taking the other ovary. So he sort of went to go on to that thinking, well, that was it, you know, because obviously in her 30s, she got to 40 and hadn't conceived and um, had had all this, you know, heartache and physical stuff going on and then I said oh but no but then hang on I did fall pregnant uh naturally at the age of 41 and 43 and then I had two more pregnancies within that time and he just looked at me going right so we're now talking about HRT in the same decade that you've had two children naturally um conceived naturally and I could tell he was even thinking because the doctors had essentially you know at the age of 40, said it's not going to happen. And on my wedding day, um, my husband and I, having had so much, you know, so many struggles to get there, we said, no, we're going to, we'd made we'd made our peace, and we just said we want children in our life one way or another. We will think about fostering adoption. We started applying for our um, you know, criminal checks and everything. And a few weeks later, I was sat in the makeup room and uh, just saying, Gosh, I just felt really swollen. I just, and my makeup lady looked at me and Jenny, and, um, you know, and everyone knew what I'd been through. So everyone was sort of walking on eggshells, but she just said, Do you, do you think you could be? And I said, No, no, of course not. You know, come on now. I'm, you know, 40, and, you know, gosh, no. Anyway, sort of went back home, thought about it, thinking, Well, it is quite odd. You know, I do feel quite odd. And then, Went to the gym, and my husband was working abroad, and um, did these. I uh, took two tests with me, and both of which came back. And I did the digital ones, both of which came back saying you are more than eight weeks pregnant. <laughs> so that was the, you know, that was the was a journey since then. But you know, that was it. Yeah. So.
0: And I wonder if because I've heard that story many times, and I wonder if there's something about the body and. Where we are on a cellular level, when there's a process of acceptance, you'd got to that place where you'd gone, okay, this isn't meant to be and then you fell pregnant naturally. I mean, I've literally a, heard that story so many times.
1: Yeah, I think um that there's two things to that one I completely concur. I think one always is quite careful because knowing how heartbreaking it is, it's you know there's that element of oh, just relax and you'll be fine and if you're in the middle of that, you just you want to just go f you know, just just really you don't you know there's a resistance to that but 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 um I can say this hand on heart that I would not have fallen pregnant uh and, and and had the journey that we've had I don't think for me without accepting that loss and I was only able to do that with with psychotherapy actually and with my wonderful who became a very close friend and sadly recently died but I paid tribute to her on Instagram and saying because the reason why I mention this is because she taught me how to lose and anyone working in psychotherapy or in psychotherapeutic services will understand what I mean when I say that is that when we hold on or I should talk from the eye I was so held on to this idea of having children and this just this fight internal fight and I was going off to Afghanistan, and I was going off to Iraq, and I was going and jabbing myself with the IVF, you know, things when I was doing big corporate events and sitting next to Princess Anne, and you just kind of go, how? When I look back, and my husband even said, it's like, how did we ever think that was going to work? And of course, we have to have a look at the mind body as one. You know, Western medicine hasn't taught us that, but that's this is what it is so if my body and that's what I write about in the book if uh, you know what goes on in the brain doesn't stay in the brain if we are so consumed by stress and tight clenchy buttocked as my friend uh, Cleo Rockers used to call it but if we are that tight and wound up then our bodies are going to respond accordingly because we're in that sort of chronic fight or flight state that chronic stress that is so unhealthy um and we're constantly pushing ourselves. There's no space to just sit and be. And I think that's where I think it comes back to your point of when we've accepted that it's not going to happen. Yes, there's a grieving that comes with that, as it should do, but actually allows the body just to come back to a place of space and acceptance. And then, now look, at 41 and 43, with an egg count of practically minus zero, at minus one, whatever, you know, it was below, it was sort of 07 Basically, if anyone's ever done their AMH, which is the anti-malarian hormone, which tells you how many eggs you've got, I was, you know, it should be up there in the sort of 20s to the 40s. And, and mine was 0.7. So th- there is something remarkable about it. And I did at the time and still think it's something of a miracle. But I do think there's a, there's a huge element of understanding that we could get to where we... um understand how the body and brain works, which brings us back, as I'm sure we will understanding why our children behave the way they do and how we can best help them. So thank you. Cause it's a really good, I haven't thought about it like that before, but that's really what I would say that me at the age of 40, you know, was having a full body experience. And once I was able to let that go with the help of a psychotherapist and with the help of my, you know, my husband on our wedding day saying we will get to the point that we want to be at, but we need to have acceptance first.
0: And then, hey, presto, eight weeks later, I'm pregnant. There's so much in there, so much in there around loss and also so much in there about where where we might be at different points in our life when we're having children and just thinking about that kind of soaking in cortisol and what that might have looked like had you managed to get pregnant while you were racing around the world in very complex areas where you were in your fight, flight, freeze mode because you were needing to survive in those spaces. And I, you know, it's very straightforward in many ways when we have this knowledge and this wisdom to look back across our parenting journey. So my children are 22 and 25 Um, and what kind of pregnancies we had and what that looks like and how that's manifested. And that's really difficult, actually, because there are things that happen and ways of living and ways of being um, that we are not likely to understand the outcome of until our children have transitioned into adulthood. And that's, Mm. that's really hard because we can't go back You know, if you think of your, so I had my first child at 26, my second child at 29. I'm now 51 and a half. (laughs) And I would be a very, very different parent. Um, Not in the love and the nurture and all of that, but actually in. Oh, God, show me a parent who wouldn't look back and go, if I'd only known how short this time was if I'd only understood and sometimes I think if I, I would give my life to just have a day mm. back then mm. and we don't necessarily have those type of conversations in safe ways and there was something else that I think came across we'll get into your book actually because it's a beautiful segue into your book Some of the things that you do to try and help people understand the science um, is you, you show those areas of experience that we are uncomfortable about. There's one passage where you talk about being observed by a friend and the pressure to behave in a certain way, to act in a certain way, to parent in a certain way, and I think you'd hurt your foot or something. You'd hurt your foot. And um, I just thought, these are the things that are really difficult. How do we stay in our strength um, in the face of really quite conflicting messages? And if we don't have that parenting guidance we don't have the intergenerational beautifulness of a mother before and a grandmother before in our presence where do we go mm. and you've added to that body I guess and, and I don't want to answer your question really but I guess my question in that context would be was that your why yeah
1: um absolutely because I've been um I've been working with a number of charities. I've been meeting with a lot of parents, um, parents who'd fostered, parents who'd adopted, children, parents whose children were in educational centers because they'd been excluded from school, parents who hadn't seen their children for um, years in one case, but had been reunited, um, her having gone on um, a wonderful, wonderful course to help her. She'd she'd had to leave the home due to domestic violence, her son was then put in care and uh, you know had terrible experiences and bringing them back together and then nurturing them both um so you can imagine the richness of the conversations that I was having and and some of the psychiatrists and psychoanalysts there's a really um, very eminent uh, professor Peter Fonagy that I reference in the book and we were having a big sort of round table discussion one day about the sort of the acute uh services that that they provided and I just said well how can I help and you know, I can come in and I can I can sort of shine a spotlight as a journalist, and I can um, pitch for programs so we can highlight this incredible work that you're doing. And he sort of stabbed a finger at me. I, had, I spoke to him this week. Actually, we were and he said it's you, your responsibility to capture and help and get this message out to this. And I'm holding my hands out wide now because he said, we can reach a certain number of parents. He said, but you know, everybody's in this position. We all, everyone's just trying to do their best. And we live in a time that is so conflicted. I mean, one of the psychiatrists said, he, he believes that the, um, the downfall, the nuclear family, he said, is the downfall of Western civilization And what he meant by that was exactly what you've just been referring to, that we've lost that wonderful sort of it takes a village to raise a child, that community sense of support. And all of that got me thinking and the parents were saying to me, write a book that you know, remember, we're not all scientists, we get it now, because we've had this incredible help and support, but you need to write a book that every parent can read. And they didn't mean that in a derogatory way, because they were just saying, look, you can sit and read all the academic papers you like, but if it doesn't resonate, so there was this big, not responsibility, but a responsibility on myself to write something that was accessible, because I get excited by science. I get excited by research. I'm a London cab driver's daughter, so I don't come from this sort of highfalutin sort of academic family. But my dad had a thirst for knowledge and he retrained and went into um, hypnotherapy, actually. And, um, you know, so I always was never afraid to ask questions because he he always used to encourage me, like, if you don't know if if it's them, they're not explaining it properly, Kate. And so, you know, there was this sense that actually if I've got to write something that someone's going to get, that's on me to do that. If someone doesn't get my book, it means that I failed to convey the message. So there was this massive science and this incredible, wonderful science that we now know that can help us to understand our children's brains and how um, the stress response works and how all of that drives their behaviour. And also this very sort of Oh, I say obvious it's it's this you know I kind of wish that these scientists had talked about it earlier but as they kept saying to me yeah but we talk in big words but anyway this sense that the brain develops in a sort of hierarchical fashion so we can't expect a three-year-old to have the same brain as us they just it doesn't isn't it's not as developed yet so I thought how can I explain all this and bringing it back to that point about that sort of sense of judgment that we all feel and the, and the sort of the, the guilt and shame that is so pernicious, but that we all go back to, because that stems into our own childhood experience or, um, very often. And I wanted to take all of that away. And when Professor Fonagy read the book, and he said, Kate, there is not a single sentence of judgment or patronizing, or, you know, he was really, and I thought, I've done my job, because if he's, because he was looking for that, because he knows the parents that he's working with if they sense that I am not on board and, and collaborative and, and going, look, guys, let's just all hold hands here because it's a really hard job and, and here's what I've learned. And the other thing that I wanted to do was, and what made sense to me, I do think in a very sort of, you know, it's a bit more visual way, I guess. Um, I felt that if I can explain the brain, in a, in a using animals, which I'm sure we'll get to, but sort of three animals and a tree, It takes away the sort of personal nature of my child is being difficult and rather looking at our children going, oh, look at that little baboon beating his chest. Like he's just showing me right now that this is really important to him. And I just because that helped me. And it helps. And I think that element of when you use the example where I'd had this bunion operation, which made me giggle because I'm like, that's my age, bunion operation, uh, which left me incapacitated. And then my son was running around upstairs, you know, in that sort of typical really high alert baboon behavior. And in that instant, my own baboon goes up. And I'm like, oh, God, my friend's watching and I feel judged and she's going to I'm writing this book. and She's going to think my children are really, you know, blah, 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 blah. and I explain that in the book, how we our stress response goes up. And then we're operating from that baboon place where we're like, well, you stop running. And that's not the mum I want to be. And it's not the parent. I'm sure any of us want to be. So, But in that moment, instead of shouting, I can kind of go, oh. Okay, hang on a moment. It's not him. Why is he running around? He doesn't normally do that at this time of night. Do you know what? I wonder whether he's been a bit worried. It's all a bit odd. I've had to bring my friend in as a bit of an emergency because I got back late from the hospital. Mum's now incapacitated. I can't look after him properly. There's a strange lady that he hasn't really met that many times now trying to help him with, you know, and and oh, let's just think about that, shall we for a second, because um maybe it's his stress response and he's needing to exorcise that. And I can now help him and I can wise owl it and I can hobble up the stairs and kind of go, sweetheart, are you, you know, and and what we did in in that situation was we all then got into bed, me and Clemency and Wilbur, and we sat there and I said, gosh, you look like you've had really big feelings today. They're all coming out all over the place. You know, I don't make my children laugh because it takes the stress away. And the first thing he said was, actually, I need to sort of find the book because there was a question and he said to me, it was it was about the operation. He said, "Oh, what, why did they why did they need you to be?" And it was something around why were you, you know why were you away today, basically, and mm-hmm. that was it right there in that exchange that he'd been all day probably holding in. Where's mummy? Mummy comes back hobbling through the door. You know she's incapacitated. She can't actually sort of do much with Wilby. He's got a strange lady in the house. Daddy's away. You know, and, and it all just spills out. And that's quite simple. And in that moment, if I acknowledge that, oh gosh, darling, were you missing mummy today? Mummy really missed you. I was curled up at this smelly old hospital. You wouldn't believe it. And then he's looking at my toe, saying, Does it hurt, mummy? And all that conversation was around that toe. And then he, and then I felt him physically relax as we discussed it. And then Clemency came in, and then we all sang a song. And there was this real in the darkness, and there was a real element and a sense for me of that's the sort of what it would have been like in traditional communities we would have had uh the men would have gone out on the hunt and it were they would have come back really high sort of adrenaline and everything and then everyone would have come together there would have been a mourning and a loss if somebody was hurt or there would be sort of a celebration of, of the animal that would have been killed and then everybody would have come together and sat and and exorcised all that stress of the, the sort of high stress of the hunt does that make sense and it just I'm trying to relate a lot of that and just kind of go, we know this stuff. Our traditional communities have known how to to live and to, and to sort of get rid of our grief in a really healthy way but and our stress in a really healthy way, but we've sort of lost that. And, um, and that's why our children pick up on it and that's why they behave very often in those situations in the way that they do.
0: Yeah, it's a lovely example. Um, and, I mean, a lot of the people, if not all of the people, listening to my podcast normally although I may get different listeners because they'll might want to google you and they'll find you on this podcast but um they would they tend to be very knowledgeable around um uh, around the science so around uh, the brain, how a bit of basic neuroscience, maybe even some epigenetics, um, mm-hmm. certainly child development, those kind of aspects, because they're working with more complexity or living with more complexity. And what I think was really interesting about your book is you wanted to take something that tends to sit in those areas and make it mainstream. And I think you achieved that. And I did have a little look at your reviews actually on Amazon and somebody moaned about, because you've got to have some reviews that don't get you because that's life, um, that it was too simple and it was a bit patronising. But actually, it's if you know, when you write, you have to really understand what it is you're trying to do and who your audience are going to be. And I think you you did it very, very well, actually, because what you did was you took something that tends to sit in fostering, in adoption, in social work, in special educational needs, in all of those areas, and you turned it into something that makes a difference for everybody. And I think that is um, quite genius. Um, So really good job there. What I was thinking about while you were talking, actually, was because I work around complexity uh, and have lived much complexity, I was thinking about those moments that you described um, just so beautifully there and how difficult they can be to access and to get into if, for example, you are living with food poverty, if you don't have any relational support, you have you live with relational poverty, if you um, are living in a community where you don't know anyone, you know, all of those kind of things that are disruptors. Um, so w- you wake up every day, you want to do your best, you understand the science, you're really focused on... Um, wanting to do everything and I know so many parents like that and there are just so many difficulties around them that actually being able to do that is really hard Mm.
1: really hard and so I think the first thing that I wanted to convey and thank you for that because it did it it was it's interesting isn't it I mean I think that's that simplicity is exactly what I was going for um because that is interesting obviously we see things often not as they are but as we are so I think if we yeah. feel that something might be patronizing actually somebody else goes oh well thank you very much that's really simple yeah. um
0: that's one of my quotes that I always use in training we see, yeah. we see things as as we are not as they are Absolutely. yeah um
1: and and so and, and I think you know most people do get it because it was designed with that purity of intent to say mm. There is no blame or shame in parenting. Right. We're all trying to do our best. And also to encourage um, whoever reads it or whoever is sort of discussing it is to be honest around those conversations, because the first step has to be in reaching and asking for help, because, as I say in the book, it didn't used to be this hard. It is hard now because coming back to that nuclear family point, if we're the ratio would have been, I spoke to um, John Bowlby's uh, son, Richard Bowlby, and he said, Kate, as part of my research, and he said, Kate, he said, it would have been at one time the ratio in a traditional community that one child would have had 19 other adults or older children, responsible children, but people who they trusted, who they knew, reaching out for them in any given day. So that's still enabled. Mum and dad to be off doing what they were doing and coming back and referencing, but that child would have had that sense of safety. Now we have very often one mum and maybe two or three. So the ratio is one to three. You kind of go, that's why it's hard. It isn't meant to be. So I think often what I really wanted was for, for, for parents not to be beating themselves up and thinking, gosh, I'm a bad parent or, oh my goodness, what's wrong with my child? But rather, What's going on for them right now? And also what's going on for me? I'm stressed. I'm hungry. I don't know where the next piece of bread is going to come from. You know, um, just all the, the, the sort of other challenges come to a place of thinking, okay, well, first thing to make it simple for them to sort of see their children um, I, I, I brings to mind a conversation with one mum that I was working with at one of the charities. And we were talking about children hitting And with this enormous sort of almost not even looking at me, she said, My son's been hitting the baby. And there was such a great sense of awfulness around it that, gosh, my son must be so awful that he's actually hitting my baby on the head. And I said, Of course he is. And she looked at me and I said, Because new babies just come into the house. Who did he have before that? She said, Me. And what's happened now? He's got to share you with this thing because he doesn't he can't comprehend he's really really young he can't comprehend that this is a baby a new being a new life he's just really really cross and that's a survival mechanism you know it, 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 it this baby is now taking away a fundamental resource of comfort and time with mummy So he's going to be cross. And and actually at the age of three, he can't show his feelings in any other way than these big feelings, you know, that sort of behavior with the, with the, you know, fist, because there's not as much emotional regulation going on and and inner regulation. And I said, my son does that. He hits his sister. We're working on it, but you know, I'm, I'm working. So together we sat and as soon as I said, yeah, my son, that's how he's been expressing his, his three and a half. And, and, uh, and so then together we spoke about what we do and I speak about it in the book in terms of using pillow power, in terms of understanding that out first and foremost, that our children are not bad or evil, um, you know, in their behaviour, they're acting out how they're feeling. So then we can help them with that and then we can start encouraging and helping that child to develop using you know um all all, all the sort of responses in the book but to actually develop and and to graduate from using their fists first of all is you cannot hit your sister that's a boundary you can't hit me but I see you're really really cross and you you look like you've you've got stuff in there you really want to and I said to Will and I said you know could you hit anything else and he went pillow and i went, and I'm thinking fantastic so I'm holding a pillow up and then Go on, then, go on, give it all you've got, you know, and, and punching this pillow. And then, of course, you end up laughing because it's also sort of becomes really silly. And then we graduate to then using his words. So now he'll come and say I'm really cross because Clements has just taken my book. And I'm like, okay, fine, mummy can come and deal with that. That's what we want. But unless I understood that, unless someone had helped me to understand that, I'd be forever thinking, my God, I've just, I've, I've failed as a parent. I've got a really violent son. He's going to grow up to be a really violent teenager. Oh my good. I would catastrophize. And then, that would impact on my relationship with my son. And all of that you don't need on top of trying to put food on the table. So I just wanted to try to make that as simple as I possibly could as in helping parents to understand their children in a way that made life easier for them, that they could cut through the tantrums and cut through the sort of the big emotional. I don't really like using tantrums and meltdowns. I've got to find different words. Perhaps you can help me with that, but Lisa, but um but you know the sort of the big behavior. Um, if I can, if I, if that's not a problem, if I'm not having to firefight that, then I can focus on all the other stuff. And also in the book throughout, and I end up with the last chapter really talking about how parents can help themselves, because if if we are not full in our emotional cup, then, you know, forget it, basically. So I put a lot in there about reaching out and asking for help. And I quoted René, Um, who is um, a dad whose wife died uh, when his children were very young. And he spoke about going to Gingerbread Club and about the sort of stigma that he felt as his really big black guy coming into a sort of a rather... um, This is him putting it in the book, you know, coming into a a rather more sort of uh, genteel London sort of club and all all the women were looking at me and he said, I had to really swallow my feelings of I don't belong here. But I was so desperate I needed them. And he said, they're now some of my best friends. But he said, I had to get to the point of being on my knees to actually reach out and say, I'm not coping. And I want that. I want to have a conversation. That's why I'm doing these podcasts and speaking to people like you and all the work that you're doing to say, we're all in it together. Let's form a grassroots you know, movement if we can and just say, look, we might not be supported as much as we like sort of in that macro society, but together we can make a difference. And that exchange I had with that mom with our sons, I know helped. Help yeah. me, help her.
0: And I think... <laughs> you know i mean i'm always on a mission to expand that that circle that web that relational wealth i mean i think what's really interesting to me when i reflect back on my parenting was around having no idea that i was supposed to ask for help yeah so even below the layer of accessing help is actually you're not supposed to be able to do this on your own and unfortunately I think a trauma response is very much about trying to do everything yourself and not asking for help because, of course, those needs haven't been met. Um, There isn't the network because you might have a very fragmented childhood, so you've moved around a lot and all of those things. I think that would be, for me, a regret and something that I speak a lot about when I'm out talking and training and doing my work is – we're not supposed to be doing this on our own. Yeah, we're not supposed to be doing this on our own, we need each other. And those groups that you talk about, you know, that you just mentioned there, I mean, they're really, they can feel really intimidating. Mm. um, And really difficult to access. And I'd found myself in a quite affluent part of London with no affluence whatsoever as a full-time working almost single parent going to these groups trying to dip in and dip out and having absolutely no meeting place and it reminded me of some of the young mums I was working with at the time how do those young mums you know access when they feel intimidated by more mature mums I mean I was as I said 26 and 29 and where I lived I was a young mum You know, I was a young mum in that area because they were all people who had had quite high flying careers. I knew they'd had high flying careers because when I went into the PTA, I came across all these professional parents, you know, who used to like head up Vodafone or something. (laughs) and I just I just was like oh my god get me out of here and I never went back I just never went Mm, back it was mm. just too awful um no offense to anyone who's listening from that time I'm sure I'm sure I don't mean you obviously um and I think it's those kind of things that we can really work together on Mm. you know as as uh, women at a certain point in our life forming that wisdom circle actually I was thinking this morning I was thinking when you don't have access to that wisdom circle where are the mechanisms in society to tap into that for younger women mm. where are those mechanisms because I don't think we have them mm. so if you don't no, you're right
1: and, and that's what I've been at. and in fact I'm working on now funnily enough because and that's why I use the Bay tree. Because the Baobab tree in Africa is the tree of wisdom. It's where all the elders would gather, all the children would come to learn and have that wisdom. So it's that wisdom circle that you talk about. It's having a place where people know they can come because there'll be somebody there. And we've come so far removed, haven't we, in our society. We think we're so far advanced. And yet we, to be honest, have regressed and and forgotten and lost that sort of atavistic sort of need and, and understanding that we need each other. Yeah. so amen to that in terms of creating a wisdom circle and um I'm sure do we, it, can, we can well literally <laughs> it's happening and that all we need is for everybody together in it yeah. so uh we can discuss that and pick that up and and take it forward and and actually if my life's work and I don't say that in sort of any grandiose way but just as a human being you know if I can look back and think you know that I was part of that then then that's 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 the best thing that we could possibly hope to achieve with our lives, right? And oh, and going back to that legacy thing, um, there won't be a parent, I think, as you say, who wouldn't wish to go back. And I think that understanding. I spoke to two two mums recently because this is the other thing I need to expand it because at the moment I'm I'm a, a lot on sort of Instagram where I've got mums who are reaching out. One mum who just adopted and said that she was feeling very she didn't feel that she'd bonded with her. Anyway, we, we, we spoke and, um, and I said, and who have you spoken to about this? And she said, no one, because I've adopted and and I'll be judged. And I said, please try, because you know what, they're going to be the best people because they'll have been through this. And if they think you're coping, they're not going to you know, because you sound like you're an amazing mom. You know, she, she we talked quite a lot, and I said you sound incredible. And anyway, she she wrote back and she went, "I've I've told everybody, and it's amazing. Everyone's been so helpful, and the bond is back." And da da, da, da. And I'm like, wow. She would have been sitting on her own with this for how goodness knows how long, and it makes you want to weep. And you, so um, I forgot my point, but just really, I think just to open that up and to say that that's that's the place to start. Oh, I know it's it's the thinking of of you know the that internal because even I hadn't really appreciated just how much our external experience impacts on brain development in our in our babies and again not to scare everybody but to say in a way of, Actually, we can always repair that. That's what I also want. And you'll know all about rupture and repair. And when we understand that our brains are still developing, your brain, my brain are still sort of fizzing and, you know, sort of lovely. And, you know, we can still have 90 year olds going into therapy. And and so our brains are wonderfully sort of um, adaptable and they can change and everything. But so we must never forget that actually we're all going to mess up um, in some way or another. Um, but if our children, especially when our children are really, really young, that's the time when we can say, okay, do you know what? I had a really, really horrific pregnancy. I had this going on. I had that. I now see that I've got a baby who is, if we understand it, we can see that if we've got a baby who's more distressed maybe than other babies, we don't look and think, well, my, this ain't wrong. We can just go and go, do you know what? I wonder if that little lizard brain needs a lot more soothing. Because when that lizard brain was inside and developing, it wasn't getting the smoothest ride. So now, when we understand that well, there's no blame or shame in that it's just that science right so that brain was developing at a time of great press pressure and stress for mum. so it will have developed with sort of a little bit more hypersensitive well okay then I can understand that if my baby's crying more than everybody else's it's not because there's something wrong with me or my baby that maybe I just need to do a bit more lizard soothing and and uh, you know you'll understand what I mean by that reading the book but it, essentially it's that very reptilian part of the brain that's the really ancient part of the brain that is um, involved in the fight flight freeze response but also our breathing eating sleeping so if the lizard is sort of constantly on red alert we're inside mummy's um uh, you know, inside mum uh, and the environment's a lot more stressed, then hey, presto, you're going to have a baby whose little lizard brain, that part of the brain that was the first to develop, is also going to be a little bit more jittery. But there's so much that we understand now about soothing that. And anything pattern, repetitive, and rhythmic, if you look at the work of Dr. Bruce Perry, um, and I've interviewed him at length, he's all in the book, um, anything pattern, repetitive, rhythmic soothes that part of the brain that brings us back to balance it brings us back to the balance as as adults which is why we love whether it's knitting running walking humming drumming all those lovely things but it can also help our babies and our children so there are solutions is what I'm trying to say and it's never ever ever too late so if we're sitting there thinking oh gosh I've got a seven-year-old who's really anxious and I see this behavior that's okay we can resolve that and again, reaching out and, find, and asking for help and finding the right resources, and, and, and actually saying, "This is my right." <laughs> right? I had a difficult time. It's my right.
0: Yeah, but I, and I think there is one missing piece of the jigsaw for me, mm-hmm. and that is we really, really understand now the optimum conditions for the developing baby. Yet we still are not um, activist enough to ensure that that message is very clear to dads, that that message is very clear to workplaces, that that message should show up in policy. So we have child-centered policy and governmental commitment to understanding what those optimum conditions are and seeing that as a long game. We are not there yet. And that that I find upsetting because if we are going to talk about what the optimum conditions are for a baby to develop inside a woman, then we have to make sure that the men in her life understand what that woman needs then and, and are able to support her. Because that men are still very invisible in this conversation. And we are not where we need to be with that yet and i and i don't know why that is i don't know if that's because women no you see women are not dominating this conversation i've been to enough conferences i've stood on enough platforms men dominate this set, this this conversation academically and women go and do the work and i'm being really general that needs to shift that needs to shift um yeah that's where I'd like us to go next. And I think we are in a revolution in so many different ways but we are in a very particular revolution the women over 50s brigade there is a lot of noise out there that we just did not have before we did yeah. not have those spaces and places yeah
1: <laughs> and capacity I mean I'm still in it to be honest with you sometimes you know I mean gosh I'd be out there um doing even more um but it'd be deeply ironic if I was neglecting my own kids in that, you know given that mine are when I when I listen to you say yours are like t- 25 and I'm oh my god we're the same age and I've got a seven-year-old um so I'm still very much in the thick of it and um and, and a very present mom and so that's that's my sort of juggle but equally I do get fired up the same as you and I, I mean I'd like to open it up really I think I, I hear what you're saying and you're dealing with that sort of policy side of things um a lot more than I although at the moment I'm working very closely so with the Duchess of Cambridge who is equally as passionate about this with as I say people like Professor Peter Fonagy, Dr Bruce Perry so I probably probably would say we open it up. And all we have to do, because interestingly, actually, is I've had loads of dads come back to me having read the book or having been told they've got to read the book. And it's interesting. And I wonder, and I'm only wondering, and I think because I've got a military husband who also had a very sort of challenged uh, childhood um, and... But with that military mindset of like, if you let them get away with this now, he doesn't talk like that. But you know, he's from Hartlepool, and he's my love of my <laughs> life. And, but I can't even, anyway, go near um, trying to mimic him. But anyway, it, you know, if if we do if we do that now, you know, this sort of soft approach is, is what would have been traditionally sort of. Um, you know, we're going to create a rod for our own back, and we're going to have a teenager who never listens to us. That was kind of, I think, his fear underneath when he watched and saw the difference between confrontation and forcing. So I talk about Wilbur being in the bath one day and um you know having a massive massive outburst and there was I heard this sort of great colour hullabaloo ran upstairs thinking God this doesn't happen very often you know kind of what is going on and I'm like get out of the bath get out of the bath you know so his baboon was up and out of the gates. Wilbur was no I'm not and then it's like oh okay so and then you know okay I'm just gonna step in here and then actually Wilbur was really really distressed and uh, I'm going off on Again, I'm sorry, but um, but Will was really, really distressed, and it turned out that it was something else entirely. And I was able to get him out of the bath in what felt like an eternity because he was really distressed, and I was really worried that he was going to hurt himself. So my baboon was having to kind of, I'm having to sort of, because you know that's the bit of our brains that kicks off when we're afraid. And at that point, I think Mike and I were afraid he was going to hurt himself in the bath. And it turned out something had happened earlier in the day, really big, big thing had happened earlier in the day. And of course, it's spilling out at at nighttime. I was able to calm him and and get him out of the bath and sit with me and hold him in a big sort of fluffy towel and rock him backwards and forwards while he told me about that experience. And we resolved it you know, and I explain it in detail in the book, it actually involves Santa Claus. So if it goes out anywhere near Christmas, you might want to have a look at that. But anyway, um, too long to go into number. And Mike stood outside and he said, my God, he said, it would have taken me probably two hours. I would have probably lifted him out of the bath using more sort of force than I wanted to, but because I was scared that he was going to hurt himself, like fall back and hit his head. I would have taken him to the bedroom he'd have been kicking and screaming I'd have been screaming you know and and he said that would have he's like then I would have felt absolutely awful for the rest of the night and just felt like a failure and an awful dad and he said you did it in a match he said it would have taken me two hours you've done it in two minutes mm. and 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 that was it and and now it's this heaven when I walk past the bedroom or whatever, and, and he'll be sort of, and, you know, using the sort of language, I call it SAS, you know, sort of inspired by him, sort of this sort of say what you see, acknowledge, soothe. And he does that. And, and he's just, yeah. So, and, and I'm finding that other dads and I think it's because of the science. I think it's because I go in, I know it's because, and that's one of the main reasons for doing it. Cause it's not my opinion. All right. This book is not my opinion. It's, 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 it's full of rich hefty science that has been informed by decades and decades of research. And I, and Suzanne Ziedeck and and, um, other incredible people doing incredible work, who were so instrumental for the book coming to life, because I wanted to highlight their work and and cheerlead them and say, look, this is not my opinion. This is Mm -hmm. what people have been finding. This is the people that have been doing this work for decades, for their lifetimes." And I'm just going to explain it in a way that makes sense to me. And I think because of that roots in science, there's a lot of dads who might have, and I don't want to generalize as well, but um, let's say people, but there's a lot of dads um, who might have thought, oh God, it's just some sort of you know softy, softly approach. Whereas they're going, oh right, there's right, okay, so the amygdala and um, sort of the prefrontal cortex, and, and yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't use that language. I use the language of the animals, but that's what we're talking about. And I think for them, it's an it makes it easier to accept that there is a different process there is a different way of working with our children than perhaps we might have been led to believe and i think it also a lot of dads have said to me like joe wicks is one who says the book's changed his life mm-hmm. and he said to me because he was parented in a way his dad as he's been very public about was a heroin addict and there was a lot of shouting in the family a lot of aggression and he's very open about that and he said kate this book has changed my life because i was becoming the adult child I am the adult child you know who was then shouting at my own children and that trauma response that we all recognize and in fact Lisa, I'm going to have to talk to you about book two because book two I want to start with us because I realise from all the feedback I'm getting and from my own experience that it's not very not it's not often our children's behavior it's what their behavior triggers in us does that make sense so if we've had trauma if we are hypersensitive to certain things, whether it's noise or whether it's violence in inverted commas, if a child hits another child or Mm. a child that is resistant or whatever, it can trigger in us something that then we respond in a baboon way as opposed to a wise owl way. And I think when we can start working with that, we kind of go, oh, right, actually, it's not them. It's actually me. I'm tired. I'm scared. I'm actually worried about what's going on in the world and whether I've got enough food on the table. That's my stuff. I can work with that. I can go and have a cup of tea with a friend and actually offload that. I'm not going to offload that on my kids. And
0: that's the deep work. That's actually the deep work. Yes. Um, And that, um, that deepening knowledge and understanding about our responses and what's coming up for us. And also the things that we're trying to protect our children from that is actually our own inner child. Yeah. So the things we're trying to ensure that our children don't have to deal with, by accident, we can give them all sorts of other things to deal with. But listen, Kate, we've actually been speaking for nearly an hour, and it feels like five minutes. <laughs> uh, we're awesome. clearly in in our favourite subject, and I and I was I was thinking while you were talking, I'm, I really should call the podcast. I don't make this stuff up, you know. <laughs> 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 yes because um, yeah. the amount of times I say that when I, I sometimes get someone questions something in um in a training session or not so I don't make this stuff up you know like it's not just come out of the top of my head yeah. But um I had so many other questions but you know what we might just have to do this again so
1: yeah we'll do a part two you know what I'd love to do is to get questions from um your listeners and that would be quite nice we could cover some of that off um I'd love to do that because it's really good for me. I'm always seeking feedback because I have my experience. I do talk to a lot of parents, you know, it's not all about me in this book, but I wanted to use my own personal experience because I think that's the most honest and authentic way. You know, there's a lot of books that are written by people sometimes if they don't even have kids, for example. And I think actually, if you know that someone's got lived experience and in fact, not just living it, but living as they're writing, um, you know, it's a very rich and I wanted just to sort of say, look, you know, if you're anything like me, this is kind of, you know, mortification at the school gate or whatever it is so I am very honest but for the next book as my children get older in honor of you know to sort of honor them um but I'm I'm always really keen to hear people's experience and what they find most difficult and actually tips and tricks that they find really good I'm now training as a um as a child therapist I, I don't know whether you know but so I'll you know in that my training we get a lot I get just gorgeous you know sort of tips and so I'm always sort of referencing people saying well thank you for that that's a I love that you know and, and and um and, and putting that in the next
0: book i will invite uh people to uh make comment and we will also this will undoubtedly make some noise on twitter so you can directly respond to people as well um which would be great but listen thank you so much for coming today oh, really, thank you for having me really enjoyed speaking to you thank you uh
1: see you